because as a nonprofit, a lot of nonprofits unfortunately went out of business because people couldn't afford to give them money and this and that and the other. Um, but luckily that did not happen to us. Our, our, we never closed our doors um, because we have veterans who live on the street and they come in here to get warm or get cool and get food. and. So you and I met, I guess, about a month ago, and I thought you just had an incredibly interesting story with a lot of different twists and turns that I thought would be fascinating. So for folks who don't know who you are, what's your 10,000 foot view of you? What's the story? Why are you on a podcast with, you know, with a guy whose name you can't pronounce? Great. No, good morning. Thanks so much. Um, gosh, a question, what, what, uh, that's a big question. 10,000. I'm usually more in the weeds, but I'll try really well. Um, my name is Eden Murray, as you heard. I am um, a veteran, but I'm also a military spouse, and I'm also a military brat. My dad was in the service for 33 years, and we traveled all over, and then I decided I wanted to fly jets, so I went to the Air Force Academy. It didn't quite turn out the way that I anticipated, because apparently you have to be able to see the airplane to actually fly it, so <laughs> they decided to uh, make me a navigator, so I did that. I spent 29 years in the Air Force, met my husband in the Air Force. Uh, we have one daughter. She's also an Air Force brat. Um, uh, my husband was a pilot. He started flying for American Airlines and followed me around for the rest of my career. And after 29 years, I retired as a senior officer. Um, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, because my husband was tired of three tours in D.C. and he was over kind of the D.C. area in Northern Virginia uh, and taxes. So we moved here to Tennessee. It's tax-free state. So we did that. It's been great. Um, uh, later on, hopefully, we'll talk about transition and, and how that affected my transition on that. But that's who I am. And and we've been here in Nashville, gosh, almost eight years. Um, I worked as a consultant for a while after I left um, the military. And then I worked in the nonprofit sector in D.C. for the Partnership for Public Service, a great organization. And now I am the CEO of Operation Stand Down Tennessee, a veteran service organization serving veterans in the Middle Tennessee area. So... I got to ask, you got to be able to see the plane to fly it. So you're telling Apparently me glasses so. and contacts. <laughs> you told so me the contacts I, wouldn't move at like certain speeds. So I'm old. Okay. We won't get into how old, but I graduated in 1984. There were about five airplanes, maybe five to seven airplanes that um, women could fly in at that time because of the combat exclusion. And then also the testing and everything had not been done on contacts and LASIK mm. and all of that. It's just, I'm old, remember this. And so now you absolutely can do that. But at the time, um, you couldn't wear glasses and and I wore glasses. And even beyond that, my vision was, was a little bit suspect on that. And so now as a navigator, you could. And so that was fine. And so um, I flew in the, or navigated, uh, flew with crews on the KC-135, which is the airplane that refuels other airplanes in the air. It is over 60 years old. Um, so uh, that's how old I am too. And so um, a great airplane still out there doing the mission today. So for folks who have never been in the military, what's a navigator? Uh, so navigate. this is how old I am. I keep saying that, but it's true. Um, so a navigator tells pilots where to go, which is why I married a pilot, because I can do mm. that at home now all the time. Mm. Mm. But uh, no, back in the day, we didn't have computers and GPS and all of that. And so you navigated by the sun and the stars and then by um, radio aids on land. And so that was how we uh, got airplanes to go to the right places. And now, of course, we all have GPS and it's all in our hand and a computer. And so very, very different. Interesting. Okay. That's pretty cool. So you decide you're done with DC. You, if I had also, if I had a dollar, every time I met somebody who said they came to Tennessee because of the <laughs> no state income tax, man. Um, <laughs> uh, hence our real estate prices going through the roof. Um, okay. So, so what does that transition look like going from, you know, the military world into the, into the civilian world and also just, I mean, leaving the bubble that is DC to come to, to Nashville. I mean, what was that transition like? What were some of those choices like? Give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it's true for a lot of veterans too. And so, especially for me, I mean, I grew up in the military as a military brat, you know, as an air force brat with my dad. And then I spent 29 years in. And so it was a huge transition, um, culture wise and, and, you know, so uh, what I say to people when I talk about military transition is for a lot of veterans, it's a, 
a change in the scope of your life, including your industry, your geography, your network, what you wear, you know, um, who your outside contacts are, what church you're going to go to, especially, you know, if you move or something like that, just a huge, just you change everything. And so I think that's a little bit different sometimes when people change jobs in the same industry or something, at least you're familiar with that. But for me, I changed everything. And then mm -hmm. I, don't get me wrong. I think uh, Washington DC in the Northern Virginia area is a great area. Lots of opportunities there, certainly, you know, huge um, veteran population. It's just for us, for the fit. Um, our daughter was here doing Teach for America in Nashville. So we wanted to be closer to her and we had some other family. It was really the first time in a long time that we could live close to family. So we chose mm -hmm. that also. Um, but that made my transition even that much harder because I had no network here. Um, there's not, you know, there's a, a base about 45 minutes away, an hour away, uh, Fort Campbell. And then there's um, an Air Force base and a Navy base uh, closer to Memphis. But no, you know, huge military culture here, there, here, although there is a fairly significant veteran population. And so I kind of worked my way into that. But it was scary. I was anxious. Um, I think everybody should be that way. It's a huge change in your life as a change for my family. When I retired, it was interesting. My daughter spoke at my retirement and she said, you know, my, my mom is leaving the military, but so am I. She said, I grew up with an ID card. I grew up living on military bases. I grew up with the jargon and she knows, and now that's all gone, you know, so even a transition for the family in terms of that. So that's kind of the background on that. And what I would say, um, certainly the the organization that I work with now, a huge line of effort that we do to support veterans is career transition. Yeah. And 80, 40% uh, of veterans leave their first job in their first year and 80% of veterans leave their first job in the second year. So if you're an employer, why would you hire a veteran? And so combating that, you know, making that not happen for people is what we try and do. And the biggest thing to do around that is find a job that's a good fit for you. In my case, I didn't have a kid in college. My husband was working. I had a great retirement and all that. So I wasn't panicked about, oh my gosh, I got to get a job. I got to get a job. I got to get a job to feed my family. I was panicked because I, I like to work and I'm like, what am I going to do? But some folks get out and they're like, oh, I got to get a job. So they take the first one and then they're really, really unhappy, which affects your family and affects everything else. And so what we try and do here is just ask those hard questions up front. What do you want to do? And it's really hard for us is veterans because I didn't want to do anything I had done in the military, but then that left a whole other big world. So what did that look like going forward? And so that's, that's what I would say is I took those experiences and brought them to this organization and, and tried to, um, to make our career transition more robust. And we have a great team who does that. It's so interesting because in so many different ways in the military. So I want to make very clear, I'm not saying, I am not saying that there's no choice and no, um, you know, following a path in the military. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is the military is a it's a hierarchical structure. It is a, you know, if you're if you're in the Navy, you are doing things that you would do in the Navy, not what you would do in the Army. You know, that's what it, that's more so what I mean. So there is this inherent structure. And as humans, we like structure, whether we like to admit it or not. It is why we seek organizations such as fraternal organization or churches or, you know, whatever book clubs, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a form of structure. So leaving that inherent structure into a world where it's like, okay, cool. The world's your oyster, figure it out. You know, what do you want to do? It, it is a conversation I've had with a, with a lot of just folks that I knew that were in the military and then left in their late twenties, early thirties, whatever. There is this existential dread in a lot of ways of like, okay, so who am I now? Mm-hmm. Because it is part of, it is an identity for it sure. Um, and you were in it for decades. So was there ever an existential dread moment of like losing your identity as well as just what you're going to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Absolutely. Um, as I said, I retired as a senior officer. So I retired as a one-star general and um, it, it just, you know, I mean, people call you good morning, general, you know, or good morning, colonel, or, you know, I mean, they didn't even use my name. <laughs> they just referred to me as the rank, which was fine. As you say, that was the structure. And then, of course, when you get out, you're just, oh, you know, good morning. Who are you? And so, um, you know, and some people have trouble with that. My family has said I've done a pretty good job with not being the general every day. Um, they make fun of me here at work. You know, three quarters of us at Operation Stand Down Tennessee are veterans, which is great when we support veterans. And so the, the team will kind of make me fun of me occasionally when I say something like, oh, the general speaking, 
And then my daughter, I gave her some advice. She's 31, so she doesn't need a lot of advice. But I was, she was asking me something the other day, and I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. And she goes, well, when I need the general to run my life, I'll call her. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, there's that piece, though, when yeah. you talk about that, you know, because it was your identity, that uniform, that rank, whatever. And, I mean, obviously, you, you achieve that status, whoever did it, um, you know, whether you're in the enlisted ranks or in the officer ranks, you achieve that status by doing, you know, really good things and, and, and getting promoted up to the wherever you got promoted to and um and so yeah it just it was a lot you know and i had seen my dad struggle with it a little bit too he retired after 33 years he was prior enlisted and then retired as an 06 which is just awesome um and very proud of him for that but he struggled with that too and so yeah it just you know i mean i i think though if you're the ceo of procter and gamble and you've done that for years and then you stop being that you know, I, so I don't know that it's totally just the military, but the military is a very, you know, it's all very together and you have to do certain things to get in and, you know, all of those things. And so, and I would say, unlike maybe Procter and Gamble or other industries like that, we all have shared experiences. To your point, we're doing a couple of different things. The Army does something, the Navy does something, the Air Force does everything really well. I mean, I have to put a plug in for my service. But at the same time, I can talk to anybody because we all have a shared experience. We all did some kind of boot camp. We all did some kind of, you know, survival training for the most part. We all had professional development that we had to do. We've all had to rate people. You know, I mean, there's just this camaraderie that you can you can walk into a room of veterans and you've all got some kind of shared experience that you can that you can reminisce about of your time in the service. So that that is awesome. But when you move and you don't have that anymore, or if you transition or when you transition, you don't have that anymore. And, and like in my case, where I moved, where I didn't it, it immediately had to find the veteran community. And so, you know, it, it can be, it can be hard and that can really, you know, and then if you came out of the service with any other issues, you know, maybe you're wounded or, yeah. or, you know, gosh, who knows so many things that can really contribute. And, and I think it has something to do, not an expert on this, but I certainly cannot imagine that it doesn't contribute because you're isolated all of a sudden and you weren't before and how we have people who are struggling with mental health veterans. Yeah. It's probably one of the things that grinds my gears the most is we're all about, this is just my opinion. Culturally, we're all about support our troops, support our troops, support our men and women in uniform until they come home and then they've got some sort of issue. And then they're, you know, potentially living in a tent and we've gone from support our troops to, well, I don't want that damn tent over there. It's, It's lowering my property value. Instead of trying to figure out like what's the core issue, why is that tent there, you know, and and all the different things that come come with that in general, which is part of what you guys do is helping that transition to where somebody actually is able to function in a society that isn't the military. Yeah, and I would say the tents are easy to find. The veterans who are really really that much in crisis, not easy to find, but more recognizable, and 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 that is what the community focuses on. Yeah. And that is really important. And we have that line of effort here too. urgent intervention, you know, whether that's finding you a house, keeping you in your house, giving you food. I would say that food insecurity among veterans is probably at least one times, if not two times higher than the general population. And we're seeing all the time that the general population is suffering with food insecurity, especially post COVID and with the higher prices right now. And so the veteran population has that. What worries me more is the veteran that you think is that is in your in your um, business or that you've hired and you think is really, really well adjusted and they are suffering in silence and those are harder to find. And so that's where the third line of effort that we have here at Stand Down is connection. Mm. And, you know, just come to an event. We have fun events, you know, and and so that, you know, even my husband comes to those. I mean, he's not working here, but he'll come and have a beer and then he can talk and, you know, do all those things. Or we did axe throwing or we have veterans who, um, are great leaders in the city of Nashville. And so we bring them in and they just kind of talk about their industry and, you know, what it took for them to get there and, you know, or anything like that. And so that connection piece, I think, is really, really important, too, because sometimes I don't want to talk about my service every day. Mm-hmm. I don't need to do that. But I do like to kind of talk about it sometimes and just remember, oh, my gosh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. And being able to connect and do that with other people or oh, that sucked. Yeah, we yeah. all did that. That was not fun, yeah. you know, and just have that. And then you go back and do your the rest of your life post post service. And so. That's what I would say. Yeah. I want to, I want to touch base one more thing on the transition piece, especially for, so I've talked about this, um, on both my other podcasts quite a bit actually, and this podcast, just due to the nature of the people that I interviewed, they tend to be, um, 
I mean, stereotypically like go-getters, you know, that essentially for me, for, for you to get my attention to be on the podcast, you have to have done something interesting, which inherently means you, you have to be interested in going and getting things, um, and achieving things and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the positive side of that is the quote, the go-getter, the, the, the potentially negative side of that. And I've talked about this, uh, in my own life is the ego drive of it. Why, why am I, why am I trying to become a one-star general? Why am I trying to become CEO of a company? Well, I mean, me personally, I'm very aware that there's an ego side of Yavitsa that can be problematic. I also understand that my ego has brought me to a point in my life where, you know, this podcast and the impact it's had career wise, income wise, a lot of positive things it has driven, but it also has to stay in check on the other side because there are two sides of that coin. So someone who made it all the way to the rank of, of, of the rank that you were in, was there a component of that in the transition as well? That, that was harder than maybe somebody who left after their first, you know, whatever their enlisted period would have been. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, so first of all, I didn't try to become a one-star general. I tried every day not to get kicked out, you know? So I think that's the other thing too, is you try and do well. I'm not saying that I'm not a type A personality and I want to do well and I want to succeed and all of that. But, um, you know, I, I think when you and I chatted before, you know, I kind of talked about how in my, in my Air Force career, I wasn't, you know, if you'd have told me when I was, you know, graduated from the academy at the 10 year point that I was going to be in for 29 years and be a one star general, I'd have laughed you out of the office, you know, and I said, yeah, whatever, you know, you know, because there are touch points in your life in the military too, where you're like, gosh, you know, I got a kid now, my husband's flying, he's home half the month, this is hard, I don't want to do this anymore. And then the military has a great way of sucking you back in. They're like, oh, we're going to send you to this really cool school or, oh, we're going to send you to a base in Europe. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds fun. And so, you know, you just su succeed at every point. But back to your point about ego, sure, I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem for everyone. It doesn't matter what rank you're at. <clears throat> Certainly, I think maybe at the higher ranks a little bit. So what we try and do here, and I had to do it for myself, is manage our expectations of what role you are going to get into the military. I did not start at this organization as a CEO. Could I have? Yes. Did they bring me in as that? No. And so that's the piece, you know, and so I started as the chief operating officer and that was fine with me. When I worked at the Partnership for Public Service, I didn't run that organization. I was a director there. And so despite the fact that I felt maybe sometimes I could do more, that's where they needed me. And they had to get used to me and they had to make sure, you know, because my resume didn't exactly transfer and, you know, some things like that. So I think that veterans have to manage their expectations for sure, which goes to your ego point, because. I will tell some folks who retire, like I did, maybe at more senior ranks, either on the enlisted side or the officer side. And, you know, if you read my bio or maybe you put it up on this, I don't know. It says I, you know, oversaw a $2 billion budget. Well, some companies don't make $2 billion, but I didn't do profit and loss every day. I didn't do income statements every day. I wasn't responsible for the bookkeeping on that. And so when you look at the business world in terms of that, that, that is important. And then the other thing is I was the commander of a base uh, in England. We wouldn't bring the CEO of Procter & Gamble over to command that base without doing some other things first. And so I think that's what I mean with manage expectations and your ego. Doesn't mean you didn't do great things. Doesn't mean you can't do great things. But there's that piece there. Now, what I will say on the employer side, you got to give a little grace because my resume wasn't going to translate. And so if you want to get me or someone else, you know, in your organization, I think that what what employers need to do. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people say, oh, we're going to hire veterans, we're going to hire veterans. It's hard to get through that computer that searches for certain words, you know, and we work hard to, to figure that out with employers and we help people with their resumes and all that. But I think some of the employers that have maybe, I have a term and it's not my term per se, there is a term out there. One we use here quite often is veteran friendly versus veteran ready. And so I think when an employer says, oh, we want veterans and we're going to, you know, blah, 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 that's kind of veteran friendly, veteran ready to me for uh, an employer. And I'm not saying it doesn't cost money and it won't be time for that employer. But veteran ready might be that your HR shop, if it says on, my, on the resume that I'm a veteran, you pull that resume aside and you give it a second look and you think to yourself outside the box a little bit, you know, maybe is this person worth an interview? And the answer may be no. But you know, if you're not, that's kind of the extra step. And so uh, veterans need to manage their expectations. 
and realize that the job that they may be applying for, they did already in the military or feel that they can do more. But if you can get your foot in the door, then you can prove yourself. You can be a go-getter. But at the same time, if I can't even get my foot in the door, then I can't, I can't make that transition as successfully, I think, as maybe I could. That was a long-winded answer. So you got that. No, I love that. And, and I want to piggyback that onto something else you and I talked about. And I really think this is important. So you decided to go and get your MBA um, at Vanderbilt after a 30-year career in the Air Force. And personally, one of the things that drives me insane about MBA programs is um, I, I don't understand why anybody's allowed to go into an MBA program straight out of under, undergrad. Like you have no business being there, none whatsoever. It's non-existent. Okay, <laughs> like whatever reason you can think of, it's it's a fugazi. Okay, it's like it's a it's fairy dust. All right, <laughs> it's not real. Um, because th- to me, when I look at when I've looked at should I go get my MBA, the number one reason I've always looked at is like what professional development can I get out of it? What can I bring to the table? And what network can I establish out of it? Well, I'm just I'm 31. I'm just now getting to the point where I'm looking at that and being like okay, I actually have something to bring to the table. Um, and I don't really even think it's that much. <laughs> so, um, so what was that experience like? Um, you don't, you don't have to poo poo all the, all the straight un- undergrad to MBA folks in your cohort. I don't, I don't expect you to do that. That's just my little rant, but <laughs> what was the experience in the MBA program like? Yeah, no. So that was a huge choice. Um, one of the best benefits post nine 11, um, and you know, when, when I say that now people are what, and I'm like, yeah, you know, after September 11, 2001, post nine 11. So post nine 11 veterans, uh, um, have this great benefit and it's called the GI bill. And it is often matched depending on your service. And so I want to be careful for veterans out there. There's certain parameters, but depending on your time, your service and this and that, and you know, how, if you were a guardsman or a reservist, how much time you spent you know, on active duty and all of those things determine your GI Bill benefits and your post 9-11 benefits. For, for many of us, <clears throat> it was a full ride to a four-year institution. I, I mean, I just, it's like, you know, just hand me money. Yeah. And so, um, no, it's incredible. And it, it concerns me sometimes because people who don't know what they, veterans who don't know what they want to do are like, oh, I'll just go back to school mm. and I'll use this for a degree in geology. Oh, okay. That's awesome because you're interested in <laughs> geology, but did you look at, you know, is that what you want to do with the rest of your life? And I'm like, don't waste this benefit. It's just yeah. incredible. So anyway, uh, as I started the job search, so I retired in August of 2013, I took about six months off. Um, I kind of established myself, you know, I had, had an LLC and I, you know, I did a few things like that. I was lucky enough to have some consulting gigs right off the bat, but I didn't really do a huge job search right away. But when I started, I would get to the second or third interview of positions. And again, I had managed my own expectations. I wasn't applying to be the CEO in most places, <clears throat> but I was applying for, you know, kind of a high, high range management role in, in yeah. either uh, in certain places. <clears throat> Some of the feedback I got was, oh my gosh, you had such a great career and look at all the wonderful things you did. Thank you for your service. But, you know, on the nonprofit sector, you've never really had to raise money. Hmm. Um, so you've never had to do that. My thoughts on that, I won't share with you, but I disagreed a little bit, but that's okay. And then, uh, the other thing they said is you have, you know, you really never had to manage the books. You have no profit and loss experience. You know, you haven't had to run a business per se and all of that. And so we need those skills. And so that was feedback I got over and over again. And, and then sometimes you would get the culture fit and, and then the culture thing for me would be like, oh, you know, you're a retired general officer you know, you expect a big staff and, you know, this and that and the other, and, you know, you're used to getting your way, which is true, but I'm not Patton, you know, so <laughs> it's not the movie Patton. So I had to get through that. I'm not as good as Patton either. So there you have that. But nonetheless, that was the feedback I got. So I thought, well, if that's important to everybody, as it seems to be, well, maybe then I better go figure out what it is. And so um, I decided to look into business schools. I had uh, most of my GI Bill left. Um, the other great thing about the GI Bill is you can give it to family members because mm-hmm. they've traveled all over with you and especially military spouses, you know, may have not had time to finish a degree program or something like that or, you know, or, or afford it or any of that. So I'd given a year of my GI Bill to my daughter, but I had enough left to not pay too much out of pocket to do that. And so I looked at business schools and um, settled on Vanderbilt for a variety of reasons. Great school, fabulous um, fabulous outreach to veterans. 
I'm not saying that other schools didn't. I mainly looked on the East Coast and I looked I looked like Virginia down, you know, mm-hmm. so I wasn't going to travel to California because I was doing the executive program. So it was going to be weekend courses and I just want to be on the road. And so it just lucked out that I chose Vanderbilt and it was here and it was awesome. I, I do think I use those skills every day now um, that I taught, that I learned. And so some of it, I was already good at strategy and some things like that, but the accounting side, still not that good at it, but at least now I know what a debit and a credit is, Mm. um, you know, valuation. Um, um, we did some innovative stuff here. We own this kind of block here in Nashville. We operations stand down Tennessee and we wanted to uh, bring some businesses in. And so we did a whole business analysis and around, you know, what would fit and you know what kind of rent did we need and where was the competition and what kind of marketing did we need to do all the things that that I learned in business school I'm not saying I hadn't heard of them before but I had not really studied them and so it was a conscious decision for me and then of course I lived here and Vanderbilt is here and so the networking piece that you already mentioned was huge and so I and I do think a little bit to your point I actually brought some skills and expertise and experiences to the class that other people wouldn't have. Although there were 42 of us, 44, right in the forties in the executive class I was in. And I would say 10 of us were veterans. And so mm-hmm. that was interesting too. And uh, everyone is much younger than me, isn't everyone. So, um, you know, oldest person in the class there again, but different experience levels and all of that. And so it was, it was a good step for me. It was a lot of work to go back to school at the time. I think I was 55. And so it was a lot of work. And oh, by the way, I had already had two masters. And so I called Vanderbilt and I'm like, hi, it's me. I have two master's degrees. Do I have to take the GRE? And they're like, yes. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so I went and got sixth grade math books so I could figure out how to add an exponent again. I didn't even know what an exponent was after, you know, 55 years. But yeah, so long story short, I think it was important. I think, again, I got that feedback and I did something about it. The nonprofit piece, I went and got my certificate in fundraising management from the Lilly School of Philanthropy. Hmm. And so I don't think raising money is rocket science, but I do think there are skills to it and there are nuances to it. And so going through that and getting that certificate, I understood more since I wanted to work in the nonprofit. And so that's the other thing I would say is if you're going to change that industry, then you're going to have to do some work to, to make it work for you. Yeah, I've raised money before, and it's uh, a lot more soft skills than hard skills. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more just knowing how to ask, in my opinion, and it when is, to ask. It is, but what are you asking for? Are you asking for a capital campaign? Yeah. Are you asking for, you know, um, a, a, a gift that will be, you know, in perpetuity after someone dies? Are you just asking for to buy a table at a fundraising breakfast? You know, are you asking to sustain a program? Are you asking seed money for a new program. And so all of those things I think are important to know. Yeah. I mean, it's basically sales skills is what it comes <laughs> down to. It's like, how it can... is, it is. Yeah. And some and, people, and... I, I, I'm not that good at it, but luckily we have a great chief development officer who is, and uh, she makes sure I say the right things. Yeah. Well, and sales is such a dirty word in our society, but it like, if I could give anybody advice, if you're 22 and you don't know what to do, go sell something. Seriously. <laughs> like go sell some, I don't care what it is. Go sell something. I told my, um, my sister graduated college a semester early and she didn't know what to do. And the deal was my parents were going to, um, they were like, you got four years. We'll pay your bills during those four years, yada, yada, yada. So she had six months of just like, cool, what will I do? And, uh, not a lot of people were hiring. I said, dude, just go like, go dealership. There's like this trek in Knoxville of just car dealerships. I said, just walk in one after another and ask for a job. She walked into the Toyota dealership. That was the first one, got a job, started selling cars, and she learned how to sell cars. She did that for six months. Um, and I'm like, that's a that's a huge skill. Being able to sell a car, being able well, to negotiate. Well, it's a huge skill on that. And then it's a huge skill, too, to learn. Uh, so the soft skills on that, but then the hard skills that you picked up, too, is can this person, does this person need financing? You know, what can yeah. they afford? And what does it look like to this? And helping them figure out what their payments are going to be. You know, just that part of it, too, I think is really important. Yeah, at 21. She was 21 at the time. I mean, that's that's huge. So um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> Go sell something <laughs> if you don't know what to do. All right. So let's let's so so you become the chief operating officer at Operation Stand Down. So how does the transition work from becoming going COO to CEO? And then talk a little bit about the organization in general. Yeah. Thanks. So I think that anytime, uh, and this happened in the military 
too to, to a lot of folks. Anytime you transition internally within roles, it can be a little challenging because as the chief operating officer, you have a different relationship with the staff and with the team mm -hmm. than you need to have as the chief executive officer. And so as the COO, I was very in the weeds and I was, re you know, I say this, I'm rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Luckily we weren't sinking, but you know, all those kinds yeah. of things. And so, but very involved yet at the executive level and a little bit with the board. We had a great uh, chief executive officer, John Crinson, army veteran, just awesome. And, and he was retiring, taking, uh, buying a farm, his lifelong dream, which is why I was even able to move up. Um, and so that, but that can happen in any organization. And so there's that internal change that I had to manage for myself. And then I still manage today, I think for the team, because I was three years here, almost four mm. as the COO, three, I guess three. So everybody was very comfortable with me in that role. They knew me, you know, all of that. And now I'm the CEO. And even for me, I need not to be in the weeds as much as I was, you know, but mm. that was where I like to be. And so, you know, somebody said to me the other day, they're like, you know, Eden, we got this just go do CEO stuff. I'm like, Oh, okay. Just so, you know, CEO there's a change stuff. there on that. Um, we did a great job. And I think anytime when you, as long as it is as positive of a change as, as we were, you know, had to be approved by the board. That's an interesting dynamic too. in the nonprofit sector, having a board. I mean, I know big businesses have a board and, and they hire, you know, the executive level and all of that. And so it's same thing in the nonprofit. And so the board had to, agree that I would be the CEO and then we had to backfill my position and all that. So a lot of transition managing that change for the team and for the donors and the community outside um, was a was was a huge strategy that we put together and like, who are we going to approach? And John Crinson and I went together to meet with the donors so they could see this was a positive change and nobody was being fired and there wasn't any bad blood and the organization was strong and you didn't have to worry about continuing to fund, you know, fund us. And so we went to corporations, foundations, met with individual donors, met with the team, you know, talked about internal team, talked about changes that were coming, different roles that people were going to move into. So I think that is just the biggest thing is managing that change, um, both internally and externally. And so I think we did a great job of that. And so there was that role there. Um, we did this, unfortunately, during COVID. Um, you know, where it added a layer of stress, I think, and anxiety to people, um, myself included, um, because as a nonprofit, a lot of nonprofits, unfortunately, went out of business because people couldn't afford to give them money and this and that and the other. Um, but luckily, that did not happen to us. Our, our, we never closed our doors um, because we have veterans who live on the street and they come in here to get warm or get cool and get food. And so if you close your doors, unfortunately, you know, you can't do that. And other, other shelters in town, we're not a shelter, other organizations in town that help people who are homeless. We did that. And then, then we had that line of effort on careers. People lost their jobs during COVID. And so it was a huge effort to help people there try and find something or help them in the interim, keep their housing, give them food, whatever until they could get back on their feet and so really really proud of our team successfully navigating a transition in leadership and this doing that while there's a pandemic and just a huge amount of uncertainty in the world and all of that and continuing just to come to work every day and do your job and take care of people and so that was just awesome and you know our organization you said talk a little bit about that we've been around for 28 years well more than that now 29 and um we um well, math and public, 28 plus. Um, we uh, we started out mainly primarily helping homeless veterans. And then through the years, over the years, one way that you take people out of homelessness is you get them a house or you get them a job. You know, you, you stabilize their lives um, to, the, to the most that you can and help them. Obviously, they have to be a big part of that. But so through that, wraparound services evolved um, that, about housing and we have a transitional housing program. And as I mentioned, our three C's, connection, careers, and crisis, you know, so our lines of effort across that and what does that look like? Um, we started out with a staff of, you know, about 25. We're nearly 50 now. We have an office here in Nashville and an office in Clarksville right, right outside Fort Campbell. And so what are the things, you know, that I mentioned earlier is to try and catch people early in career transition and say, just take a breath. You're going to be okay. Take a deep breath. You know, let's, let's, let's work on where you want to be as opposed to just, you know, that first, that, that panicked first got to get a job. And so, and then the connection piece, really, really folding that out 
and and doing that. So that's kind of who we are. And that's how I think we did that transition. I don't know that it's any different here than before. You know, it's interesting. I was chatting with someone the other day and I said, we're a business. We have clients. We do sales. We do all those things you do like that. Our clients are not charged. So we have free services. And so we have to ask people, sell our mission to people to help us support those veterans. But we're a business like everybody else. And so when you're managing a business or you're managing that transition, and that happens, you know, about every two to three years in the military, your leadership is going to change. And that's a, that's an uproar for everyone. So I guess for me, it wasn't, I'm like, well, just again, we've done this. I've done this before, you know, we'll just get through it and, and all of that. And, and so, and I think the fact that about three quarters of us here are veterans made it a little easier because there wasn't that, that much angst. Oh, we're just switching leaders again. You know, we'll survive this one too, is how they were saying it, you know, that type of thing. So that's kind of where we are, where, how I came to be here and then how I became the CEO and then, um, and how we managed that transition and, and during COVID and, and thanks to the team, we finished 2021, uh, 2020 strong is maybe not the right word, but safe, I will say, and, and good and 2021 will come out. And some of that's due to the federal dollars that came in that PPP money we were able to get and, and the, you know, a lot of people won't say anything nice about the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. I will. They're not perfect. No organization is. Can they improve? Absolutely. Can't we all? But I will say that the Department of Veterans Affairs really stepped up in, uh, in funding and additional services and support. And we were able to leverage that for our clients. And then that, of course, pays our staff to provide those services. So that's kind of how that transition worked. And, um, and if you had, when I first got here, and it was in 2017, I didn't really want to be the CEO. I was so happy as the COO because I didn't have to do podcasts and I didn't have to publicly speak. And I wasn't really the face to donors. And I'm like, oh, well, because I had done that in uniform. You know, I had been on all the time in uniform. Uh, it's certainly the last about seven years I was in, in the service. And so it was kind of nice to be able to, you know, be with the team and, and not have to be at the pointy end of the spear. And so I'm back at the pointy end of the spear, which is great. Obviously, uh, so far I have it, knock on wood. No one's fired me. I've been here since September of last year. And so I've made it that far. And so uh, it's it's a different skill set that I had to go back in and, and get. But it's it's all good. Mm. <laughs> you didn't have to do podcasts. Are you telling me this? This is not the most fun part of <laughs> well, your day. Well, I mean, I just, I was like, oh, somebody else could do that. So, but now I do. And I love, I love this organization. I love this mission. Also, if you had told me when I retired that I would work uh, in the nonprofit sector in a veteran service organization, I just said, yeah, no. Yeah, but so I'm it? here. The mission is great. We're doing great things, um, and and I'm able to use my personal experiences, I think, to make our services relevant. So, what does it look like for a veteran? Let's say somebody enters y'all's organization, you know, as a veteran that's that needs some sort of help. What does that process look like? What does that transition look like? What do the end results look like typically? Yeah, well, it kind of depends on the services you're looking for. But the biggest thing you're going to do is you're going to call us or come in and see us. And then uh, first thing we have to do, and some people are like, why do you have to do that? Well, because I have to prove you're a veteran. We're a veteran service organization and the dollars we get from the federal government and donors are to support veterans. So you have to prove to me you're a veteran. Everybody talks about their DD-214, which is a piece of paper you get when you leave active duty. And so we have to see that. There are other ways we can do it. So if you don't have that, I mean, to find mine, I'd have to go in the safe in my house, you know, the fireproof one where it doesn't burn up. Um, if I didn't have that, you know, we can send away to the service to get it or to the Department of Defense uh, records and, and get it and all that. So we help people if they can't access that to do that. In my case, I have a retiree ID card that works, you know, all those type of things. So first thing we have to do is prove, you know, validate that you're a veteran. <clears throat> Most people, we don't have a lot of trouble with that, but still we have to have those records on file. One nice thing that you'll know about our organization, I'll talk about nonprofits just in large in general here. You can see how much we make, how much I make on our 990. That's filed every year. Um, ours just got filed, as a matter of fact, um, for um, 2019. They're always a year behind, you know, because they're doing that. And, or 2020. I don't know. Anyway, we just did ours. And so you can see exactly how much our organization is worth, where the money goes, what we pay for. In our case, about 85 cents of every dollar goes to programming. And so that keeps our overhead very low, which is good and bad. It's good for our services. It's bad for the team because they have a lot of, everybody's wearing a lot of different hats here yeah. to keep that. 
And so um, I just say that in general. So when people look at supporting organizations, of course, I want people to support us, but that's what you're looking for when you look at an organization. There are a lot of veteran service organizations out there. Some are awesome, so maybe not so much. So that's when you're looking to support. But anyway, was you come in as a veteran, you're going to call us, come to us online, say, hey, I got a problem, or I'm transitioning. Can you tell me about, you know, I want some career help. I want some help with my resume. I just want to chat with you about what that might look like. Or I am struggling to, my got a job, but it's not paying my bills and it's not keeping food on the table very well. Come in here and let's see if we can upgrade that job. Or let's see if we can help you with some uh, rental assistance. Or I'm about to lose my my house because of whatever reason. Uh, maybe we can help you with that. You know, so um, several lines of effort. Or I just want to connect. I want to volunteer. Then we have connection and we have pieces for that. But the first thing you're going to do is contact our team. Come in, walk in through the door or a phone call. We're going to verify you're a veteran. And then depending on what you say to us is going to depend on who we hook you up with in the organization. Okay. Interesting. And then obviously, and you know, we helped a guy from Afghanistan who was uh, deployed in Afghanistan and thinking of moving to Nashville. He found us online. The team worked with him, you know, whatever. We helped a guy from Australia. If you're thinking of moving to Nashville, then we can help you. You know, we're kind of what I would say is we try to be anyway. If people um, who are veterans remember, sometimes your first stop when you got to base was lodging to figure out where you're going to live while you figured out your permanent residence and then the family readiness center or whatever to you know, figure out some things like that. And, and we try to be that one-stop shop. You may not need anything other than, you know, gosh, you know, got any idea what schools are out there? Well, yeah, we have ideas. I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but here's where some are, you know, and, and how, you know, just answer general questions about a veteran living in Nashville, you know, and all of that. And so that one-stop shop to just to answer yeah. questions. Yeah. It, it obviously goes down different paths. It's like a choose your own adventure at that point based on what you need, where you're trying to get, do you have any issues or, or is it just more so help me get acquainted? Let me figure out, um, you know, let me figure out the network, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we have some great programs. We have two around transition. Um, we have a veteran mentorship program and there are great veteran mentorship programs nationally. Um, Veterati is one, um, Hire Our Heroes um, has one. Um, just there's a lot. I can't even name them all. There's a lot. Some are more specially uh, or more special, you know, use specialized groups like the special operations has their own mentorship program and all of that. So our veteran mentorship program here that we run out of stand down is targeted toward industries in middle Tennessee. And so maybe you're moving here or maybe you want it. Maybe you're in a job and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to be in this industry anymore. I want to work with, you know, and so we'll hook you up with a mentor, either veteran or non-veteran that's volunteered to give you some time. We have kind of a set program. It's about four months of engagement. And they're going to say, oh, you think you want to teach? Well, then maybe you ought to look at getting this certification. Or maybe you ought to join this association. Or have you thought of, you know, are you in Rotary? Or are you in the Lions Club? Or, you know, where, where you know, that person may think industry-wise that that would be good. And then we have um, a veteran fellowship program. And that is placed, that's um, four months and what that does is you apply for the program. It's an application program. And you do four months and you spend, oh, I don't, we're, we're the program morphs every time we do it. And so about 24 hours a week with an employer here in Middle Tennessee. And then you also get a certificate, certificate in business administration from Belmont's of the Jackson Massey School uh, College of Business. And so you're doing academic learning and then you're seeing that in person at a business. So you're, you're learning the basics of accounting it's not an MBA. So when I say the basics, you know, kind of the definitions and an income statement versus a balance sheet, you know, all of that. And then um, you're going to, the business is going to show you that, you know, you're going to sign a non-disclosure and they're going to say, this is how our balance sheet looks like. This is what our income statement mm. looks like. This is how we track, you know, this and that. And then you're also going to be an employee for them for four months. It's a paid fellowship. So you get a stipend and you make an hourly wage, but it's that, 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 synergy between the academic piece and the the host employer who's you know giving you some time in their business to kind of learn that and, and so then you may not get hired by them it is not a job placement program you may not want to be hired by them but then your resume can have a line on it that says i did this fellowship and i learned these things and so those mm. are two things that we do there on the career side where you say we match the veteran to that and then we just started a line of effort based on what we learned. Again, being relevant is important for any business, the nonprofit business too. And, you know, again, our, we don't have a product per se, but we have services. So what is a relevant service that we can provide veterans? And one that we found that is unfortunate, 
is what I talked about before, and that's addressing food insecurity. Mm. And so we have what we call Operation Commissary. Anyone who's in the military has a commissary on their base, post, whatever the other services call it. And so this is a our food bank. And so it's a great collaboration here in Middle Tennessee with Second Harvest. And we got some great seed funding for the program um, from the Woodruff Foundation and from the Frist Foundation and just a lot of individual and other corporation donors coming in and helping us with that to get this off the ground. And so we have a food bank in the in the back of our in the warehouse of our building. And but the trouble with veterans is they won't ask for help sometimes. And so we're delivering that food, especially if you're elderly or maybe you're a gold star spouse or the widow of a veteran, then we're going to deliver that food to you because we do see the food insecurity, you know, as you get older, some of that, that it just happens there. But yeah. then, so we're doing that. And then the other thing we're doing in the 10 counties is, um, and we don't want the stigma there either. Some people either can't get here to get a food bag or they're like, Oh, I don't want to go. Cause people will think that, you know, I can't take care of myself or take care of my family. That's not just veterans who sometimes feel that way, but certainly it can be, you know, more, a little bit more of us feel that way. And so we want to combat that stigma too. And just like anybody, like you're getting an Amazon delivery, we're dropping off something. Nobody knows mm. what it is. And then what we'll do, we'll uh, collaborate. We're starting to do this with uh, the VFWs and the American legions or veteran service officers in other counties, and we'll take them food bags. So when people come in there, they can just get it there. You know, I'm going in to check my VA benefits. Oh, having trouble with some food this month. Why don't you take food bag? Yeah, well, you know, awesome. and then in those, um, these are non-perishables, obviously. And so then what we're able to do is those people will ask them if they want to, to fill out a card and call us and get in our system, which is what I talked to you about calling us and all that. We put you in the computer, we verify your status as a veteran, and then you will, we can send you once you're in our system, we can send you, um, a, a gift card for like Kroger to buy some of your perishables. But the other thing it does too, when we get you in our system, we can say, oh gosh, I understand that you're having, you know, that you're having trouble uh, for whatever reason, your food insecure. What can we do to help that? It gives us, you know, some insight. Well, my job only pays, you know, $12 an hour. Well, let's see if we can upgrade that job or find you yeah. a different one or, you know, or I'm, you know, I'm struggling to pay my rent. Well, let's see if there's anything we can help with that. Maybe we can talk to your landlord and, you know, or have you accessed your VA benefits? You'd be surprised at the number of veterans who have not accessed their VA benefits. And when I'm talking about that, the VA is like, um, the VA is huge. And there's VA home loans and the GI Bill and other benefits like that. And then there's VA hospitals and there's medical care. And then there's VA disability claims for your mm -hmm. service. You know, is there some kind of disability that you had? And so the VA is a lot of things. When you say the VA, it depends on what you're talking about for that. But on that disability part, I mean, I'm a disabled veteran, not by much, because I was around airplanes all my life. Some of my hearing is not as good as it should be. And so I got a yeah. disability rating for that. Some people had much worse time for a variety of reasons. That disability rating, you know, you get your initial one, it can be revisited and all of that. And that can turn into money in your pocket, which then can help you do other things. Um, I always tell the story about my dad. My dad passed away as soon as I started working here at Stand Down. He was retired. My mom had worked, you know, money wise. I thought, oh, you know, they're fine. I mean, you can never have too much money, but you know what, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah is my mom was comfortable, so I wasn't too worried. I was talking to one of the team here, and they're like, oh, you know, your mom's gonna be entitled to some benefits because your dad served. And I'm like, oh, you know, and the woman said to me, Lisa Kiss, the veteran service officer for Davidson County, one of them, she said to me, she goes, well, you know, if your mom doesn't need any extra money, then, you know, then don't do the work. And she shamed me into it. And it took about three months to, you know, get my dad's records in shape and all that. And sure enough, my mom gets money every month. So those are things that we can help people do. Interesting. Well, we're coming up on, on time. I think we've, we've put a whole bunch of info in, in the last 50 minutes or so. Um, so I want to ask you a question. I, um, but if, if we go and look over the last, you know, 40 years of your life, every experience you've had, professional, personal, whatever it may be, what is something you look back on and say, man, professionally, I was just putting a bandaid over something and I wish I could change that or do it differently knowing all that you know at this point in your life? Gosh. Uh, wow. That's a lot to think about. I'm thinking back through the 40 years. Wow. That I, I you know, kind of where could I have made a bigger difference maybe? Or I, here's one thing. I think that we did well and we, we fixed something. And so there had been a Band-Aid. 
certainly at our base in, in Mildenhall and, um, you know, kind of a Band-Aid on getting parts to airplanes and, you know, and getting getting airplanes off the ground, your sortie rate and, and, and you know, just being really effective with the mission and some things have been glossed over the way it was already, you know, always done. Well, that's what you have to do. And we had a team of airmen that were just so innovative. And so the Band-Aid had been, it was kind of always the way it was done. This is what the rules say. This is what the regulations say. This is what we have to do. So you just did that. And the Band-Aid is, well, okay, we'll just do the best we can with this. So we ripped that Band-Aid off and we said, how about if we do it differently? And we got permission, which is unusual, <laughs> from the senior leadership there in Europe, the United States Air Force is in Europe, to try something different. And, you know, it said you couldn't do, you couldn't change out a fuel bladder for a 135 inside an aircraft hangar. And so you had to move it out and do all these things, just, just really making everything hard. And to some extent, this was Lean Six Sigma, you know, looking at it from that perspective, from the processes and, and all of that. And this team of airmen, these maintainers, uh, enlisted in officers, they just took every process there and let's just look at it. We've got permission now to make some changes. You know, we were keeping everybody safe and, you know, all of that. So we weren't violating safety rules, but we were looking at things differently in terms of the rules and the regulations given permission to do this. And so um, our sortie rate went up by 30%. Mm. And, and the, besides getting airplanes off the ground, which, you know, in a combat the is goal. important, <laughs> um, it, improved the the work processes and, and environment for the team and so it wasn't such a drag to go to work you know i mean what we had yeah. this stupid rule that when you left the flight line you had to have your hat to go in the dining facility well you can't have your hat on the flight line because it'll get sucked into you know an engine so you had to leave the flight line go way over here to get your hat so you could go way back here to the dining facility we're like maybe we just don't have to wear hats on the flight line dining facility there's an idea you know things like that and so yeah. i'd say the innovation piece is that and i think that could happen with a lot of you know we put band-aids on a lot of things because that's the way it was and so if you give people some room to be innovative they will mm. give people room to be innovative I like that. So that's that's one way to end uh, end a podcast. Um, how can folks get a hold of you? Um, so they, um, me personally, um, my uh, email is Eden at osdtn Oscar Sierra Delta Tango November dot org. Eden at osdtn dot org, and then our organization is osdtn dot org. And on there, like if you want to talk to career development, there's an email for career development. There's an email for info at. There's an email if you would like to donate. There's an email for development at. You can donate on our website. Um, and everybody's like, oh, great. She's in in the podcast, you know, because she wants money. Well, yeah, um, because this podcast is national. Um, probably most of you don't live in Tennessee, so you can't volunteer. So, yeah, anything you do to support your uh, veterans here. And here's the other thing I'll say is the nice thing about the veterans service organization communities, we all collaborate. So mm -hmm. we have a veteran service organization that's right next door, Creative Vets, which yeah. is a national organization and it's healing through the arts. And so we all collaborate. So giving me money just means that I'm helping somebody else out, but that's how you can get hold of us. I love it. I love it. And I'll put your bio in the description and the links and all that good stuff. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever, just open up the info tab and you can click on whatever you like. Outside of that, for everybody listening, workwithyov.com. That's workwithjov.com. You can find all the episodes there. Eventually, I'll put a blog up, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, besides that, Eden, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. No, um, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. Yeah, I loved it. It was, uh, it was great. And uh, for everybody listening, we'll talk to you guys soon.